0: Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this grey, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny-tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. 1. I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. 2. I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But 3. And this is key. I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe illegal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music. Which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean... I've learned a lot over the last two years, and who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now, so why should your present-day ears be punished because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button? Anyway, without further ado, here is the podcast you came here for, just slightly better. Thanks for listening.
1: It's the Pages of Popcorn podcast. Jennifer and Kalia will end It's the Pages and Popcorn Podcast. Jennifer and Kalia are gonna talk, so you better
0: damn well listen. Hello and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast, the podcast where we, Jennifer and Kalia, two book nerds, talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material.
1: Today we will be discussing Silence of the Lambs, which was a 1988 novel by Thomas Harris and was adapted for the big screen in 1991.
0: But first, we're going to tell you all the ways that you can connect with us on the internet. As you know, we have a webpage where you can find sources, references, and updates about the show. You can also connect to us via our Facebook page or our Twitter, both searchable by typing Pages and Popcorn Podcast into your search bar. We now have weekly polls about our episodes on Facebook and Twitter, so check them out and make your opinions known. And of course, you can email us directly at pagesandpopcornpodcast at com. We want to thank all of our patrons for their continued support and remind you that our Patreon page is www.patreon.com slash pagesandpopcornpodcast. You're welcome to support us and the podcast for as little as $1 a month. A tiny little bit of support helps us keep making these wonderful podcasts. So head on over to our Patreon page and sign up. Again, it's patreon.com slash pagesandpopcornpodcast.
1: And we want to really encourage you to rate and review us on whatever platform you listen to us on, especially iTunes, because that will help other people find us. Now. On with the show.
0: So I'm going to be doing our book and movie recap. Do you want to... You picked this, so do you want to say something about that, or do you want to wait until after my recap? I watched
1: it when it first came out, so I guess I was a little too young to see it, but it was one of my mom's favorites for a while. And then I read the book when I was in Greece, of all places. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. It was one of those books that when you do a lot of traveling, sometimes uh, hostels will have like the little library, and so I just grabbed it.
0: Okay. Yeah. A, a, a choice of convenience rather than.
1: Well, I liked the movie, and so I was interested in the book. And at the time, I'll, I'll save it for later. I just. I was a little disappointed when I reread the book, I had a different opinion.
0: Oh, okay. Well, I saw the movie years ago because um, somebody I was with told me it was Canon and I needed to watch it. So we watched it and um, and then you put the book on our list so I read the book and then I watched it again. So I'm, I'm here can, we go. I'm slightly accused here. <laughs> book recap. Clarice Starling is a young FBI trainee. She's asked to carry out an errand by Jack Crawford, the head of the FBI division that draws up psychological profiles of serial killers. Starling is to present a questionnaire to the brilliant forensic psychiatrist and cannibalistic serial killer, Hannibal Lecter. Lecter is serving nine consecutive life sentences in a mental institution for a series of murders. Crawford's real intention, however, is to try to solicit Lecter's assistance in the hunt for a serial killer who has been dubbed Buffalo Bill. The modus operandi of Buffalo Bill involves kidnapping overweight women, starving them for up to two weeks, killing and skinning them, and then dumping their remains in nearby rivers. The nickname was started in Kansas City Homicide as a sick joke because he likes to skin his humps. At the asylum, we meet Dr. Frederick Chilton, the asylum's administrator and Lecter's self-styled nemesis. Starling is at first unable to get much from Lecter, but she does get accosted by another inmate who lobs semen at her face. Over the course of the novel, we get a lot of administration stuff, details about how the FBI investigates and how hard it is for Starling to keep up with her studies while helping the investigation. Remember, she's still a student. We also get her roommate mag and some other stuff about Starling being a really good shot and respected by her teachers, but we aren't really here for that. No, we're here for Lecter. Lecter, by the way, has given Starling a clue about an old case, which leads her to a storage unit, a dark, mice-infested storage unit with a door that won't open all the way, and of course there's rain, and it's all Mr. Mysterious, and she climbs inside, and there's a car, and in the car there's a mannequin with a dead guy's head in a jar. Lecter also convinces the semen-tossing inmate to kill himself, So, there's that. As the novel progresses, Starling periodically returns to Lecter in search of information, and the two form a strange relationship, in which he offers her cryptic clues in return for information about her troubled and bleak childhood as an orphan, and her time on a ranch. Also, there is so much misogyny I gave up counting. Starling hates it, knows it's part of the life as a female FBI agent, but still hates it, and is not afraid to call people on it in the right time and place. Anyways, Buffalo Bill's next victim is found in West Virginia. Starling helps Crawford perform an autopsy on the body, and Starling finds a pupa in the throat of the victim. Just as Lecter had predicted, the victim has also been scalped. Lecter's also said that Bill is obviously needing a vest with tits gag. Triangular patches of skin have also been taken from the shoulders of the victim. Furthermore, the autopsy reports indicate that Bill had killed her within four days of her capture, much faster than his earlier victims. Starling takes the pupa to the Smithsonian. She meets a couple of not-doctor, doctor, PhDs, where it's eventually identified as the Black Witch Moth, a species that does not naturally occur where the victim was found. On the basis of Lecter's prediction, Starling believes that he knows who Buffalo Bill really is. She asks Crawford why she was sent to fish for information on Buffalo Bill without being told that she was doing so, and Crawford explains that if she'd had an agenda, Lecter would have sensed it and never spoken to her. In Tennessee, Catherine Baker Martin, the daughter of a senator, Ruth Martin, is kidnapped. Within six hours, her blouse is found on the roadside, slit up the back, which is Buffalo Bill's calling card. Crawford estimates that they have three days before Catherine is killed. Starling is sent to Lecter with the offer of a deal. If he assists in Catherine's rescue and Buffalo Bill's capture, he will be transferred out of the asylum, something he's continually longed for. Lecter expresses skepticism at the generousness of the offer. After Starling leaves, Lecter reminisces about his past and Recalls a conversation with, with his former patient, Benjamin Raspail, a former patient he had eventually murdered. During the therapy sessions, Raspail had told Lecter about his former lover, James Gum, who Raspail had left Gum and began dating a sailor named Klaus, and Gum had become jealous and murdered Klaus using his skin to make an apron. Raspail also believed that Gum had an epiphany while watching a moth hatch. So anyways, this is all happening in Lecter's memory palace, and Lecter's ruminations are interrupted because Dr. Frederick Chilton, remember him, the guy from before? He steps in. Apparently, he planted a listening device and has allowed him to record Starling's offer. Chilton has found out that Crawford's deal is all a lie. He offers one of his own. If Lecter reveals Buffalo's true identity to Chilton, he will indeed get a transfer to another asylum, and Chilton will get credit for getting this information out of him. Lecter agrees, but insists that he be allowed to give the information Information to Senator Martin in person in Tennessee. Unknown to Chilton, but to the reader, Lecter has secretly collected the ingredients for an improvised handcuff lockpick he deduces will be useful at some point during the travel. In Tennessee, Lecter toys with Senator Martin briefly enjoying the woman's anguish, but eventually gives her some information about Buffalo Bill. His says that his name is William Billy Rubin, and he has suffered from elephant ivory anthrax, a knife maker's disease. He also provides an accurate physical description. The name, however, is a red herring. Billy Rubin is a pigment in human bile and a chief coloring agent in human feces, which the forensic lab compares to the color of Chilton's hair. Okay, Starling tries one last time to get information from Lecter as he is held in police custody. He offers a final clue. We covet what we see every day, and then demands to hear her worst memory. Starling reveals that after her father's death, she was sent to live with a cousin on a sheep and horse ranch. One night, she discovered the farmer slaughtering the spring lambs and fled in terror with a mare also destined for the slaughterhouse, whom she named Hannah. They didn't get very far, and she and the horse were sent to live on an orphanage when they spent the rest of their childhood. Or her childhood and the horse's life. Lecter... Seeing the parallels between the helpless lambs and the equally helpless Catherine thanks her for her candor and the two share a brief moment of connection before Chilton forces her to leave. Shortly after this... Lecter escapes by killing and eviscerating his guards, using one of their faces as a mask in order to fool the paramedics. In Buffalo Bill's basement, Catherine is trying to escape by tricking the much-loved little pet dog of Bill into her well prison cell to use as a bargaining chip. She knows who has her, and he wants her skin. She's understandably terrified. Bill, for his part, is getting ready to kill her soonish, and is preparing by watching old movies of his mother, a beauty pageant contestant. Starling continues her search for Buffalo Bill, deducing that he knew his first victim, Frederica Brimmel, from Everyday Life, Bimel, sorry, Frederica Bimmel. from Everyday Life. She visits Frederica's family home and discovers that both she and Buffalo Bill were accomplished tailors. Catherine has managed to get the dog to fall into her well and is threatening to kill it unless Bill gives her a phone and he's pretty frantic, but he decides to shoot her in the head and give up on collecting her hair as part of his project. Meanwhile, by canvassing Bimmel's known associates, Starling ends up at the house of one Jane Gum, a dressmaker and leatherworker. She spies a black witch moth in his home, and then she knows whom she's really found. However, Gum also knows that he knows what he knows, Okay, and he escapes into his basement. Starling, armed only with a revolver, but aware that calling for backup will result in Catherine's death, follows him down and kills him after a protracted chase. Catherine is returned to her family with the dog unharmed. Starling receives a congratulatory telegram from Lecter, who hopes that the lambs have stopped screaming and indicates that he has no plans to pursue her. He also predicts correctly that saving Catherine Martin may have granted Clarice some relief, but that the silence will never become eternal, heralding her motives for a continued career at the FBI. Clarice eventually finds rest even after Lecter's letter, sleeping peacefully in the silence of the lambs. The End. Okay, so the movie, directed by Jonathan Demme, uh, from a screenplay written by Ted Talley, stars Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins. The film was very similar. Okay, so a lot of this is the same. But I punched up the thing just to make it a little bit more interesting to listen to. Again, FBI trainee Clarice Starling is pulled from her training at the FBI Academy. Again, by Jack Crawford, the Bureau's Behavioral Science Unit. He assigns her to interview Hannibal Lecter, a former psychiatrist incarcerated cannibalistic serial killer whose insight might prove useful in the pursuit of a ciliary killer named... Buffalo Bill, who scans his female victims' corpses, Starling travels to the Baltimore State Hospital for the criminally insane, where she's met let by Frederick Chilton to Lecter's solitary quarters. Although initially pleasant and courteous, Lecter grows impatient with Starling's attempts at dissecting him and rebuffs her. As she's leaving, one of the prisoners flicks semen on her face! Lecter, who considers this act unspeakably ugly, calls Starling back and asks her to seek out an old patient of his. This leads her to a storage shed, where she discovers a man's severed head with a sphinx moth lodged in his throat. She returns to Lecter, who tells her that the man is linked to Buffalo Bill. He offers to profile Buffalo Bill on the condition that he may be transferred away from Shelton, whom he detests. Another victim is found. Starling performs the autopsy, finds the moth in the throat, takes it to the Smithsonian for clarification, yada, yada, yada. Buffalo Bill abducts a senator's daughter... McCawford authorizes Starling to offer Lecter a fake deal, blah, blah, blah. Okay, Buffalo Bill. Okay, instead, Lecter demands a quid pro quo from Starling, offering clues about Buffalo Bill in exchange for personal information. Starling tells Lecter about the murder of her father when she was 10 years old. Chilton has secretly recorded the conversation and reveals Starling's deceit, and then he offers Lecter his own deal. Lecter agrees, flown to Memphis, verbally torments the senator, gives her misleading information on Buffalo Bill, including the name Louis Friend, Starling notices that Louis Friend is an anagram for iron sulfate, which is fool's gold, okay. She visits Lecter, who's now being held in a cage-like cell in Tennessee courthouse. The lighting is very creepy, and she asks for the truth, and Lecter tells her that all the information she needs is contained in the case file. Rather than give her the real name, he insists that they continue their quid pro quo, and she recounts a traumatic childhood incident where she was, once again, awakened by the sound of spring lamps being slaughtered on a relative's farm in Montana. Starling admits that she still sometimes wakes, thinking she can hear the lamps screaming, and Lecter speculates that she is motivated to save Catherine in the hope that it will end the nightmare Lecter gives her back the case files on Buffalo Bill after their conversation is interrupted by Chilton and the police, who escort Clarice from the building. Later that evening, Lecter kills his guards, escapes from his cell again by using the face of one of his victims to trick the EMTs, and disappears. Starling analyzes Lecter's annotations in the case file, realizes that Buffalo Bill knew his first victim personally. Starling travels to the victim's hometown and discovers the Buffalo Bill was a tailor with dresses and dress patterns identical to the patches of skin removed from each of the victims. She telephones Crawford to inform him that Buffalo Bill is trying to form a woman's suit out of real skin. Crawford's already en route to make an arrest, having cross-referenced Lecter's notes with hospital archives and finding a transsexual woman named Jane Gum who once applied unsuccessfully for a sex change operation. Starling continues interviewing friends of Buffalo Bill's first victim in Ohio while Crawford leads an FBI team to Gum's address in Illinois, but the house in Illinois is empty. Starling is led to the house of Jack Gordon, who she realizes is actually Jane Gum again by finding a sphinx moth. She pursues him into his multi-room basement where she discovers that Catherine is still alive and, yes, has the little dog because Catherine is a vamp and both "'Whatever, Catherine's in the well. "'After turning off the basement light, "'Gum stalks Starling in the dark "'with a night-vision goggles. "'He gives his position away "'when he cocks his revolver. "'Starling reacts just in time, "'fires all her rounds, killing Gum. Sometime later, the FBI Academy graduation has a party, and Starling receives a phone call from Lecter. He assures her he does not plan to pursue her, asks her to return the favor, which she says she cannot do. Lecter then hangs up the phone, saying that he is having an old friend for dinner, and starts following a newly arrived Chilton before disappearing into the crowd. There will obviously be a sequel. Hmm. So I guess we could start by saying this was book two in a series. <laughs> They'd already made a movie of the first one; it was not well received. Then they made this one. Then they remade the first movie later, which was much better re- received. And then they made the third book in the series. So yes, it's it's a whole it's a whole thing.
1: Yeah, the first movie was really terrible. At certain points, you can actually see the boom mic going into the screen. It, it was just poorly half-assed done. Yes. I've seen parts of it. So, okay. Go ahead, because you're you're kind of chomping at the bit. So. No,
0: I have a list. We always have a list. All right. Do you want to talk, though? I just did a whole bunch of words. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. So, do you want to talk about similarities and differences, since there's... There's not really
1: all that much that's different. They took out a couple of the side plots. So, one of the things in the novel is... Jack Crawford, who is based on John Douglas, who's the actual head of the FBI profiling team... His wife is dying, and so he's sort of taken out just by that emotionally. But there's hints here and there that he and Clarice may, may not. There, There's a lot of speculation by other characters, including Crawford, that they have a romantic relationship or will.
0: No. No, it's a father-daughter relationship. It Crawford. Is Chilton. Well, Chilton. Okay. save that. So, yes, they took out a lot of Crawford's side plot about his wife died, but they also took out his reference to the first book where William Graham had encountered Hannibal Lecter and had been disfigured and blah, 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 and that lends a lot into Crawford's character. Crawford was very protective of Clarice. He's trying to basically even the score but you know like ma- make amends for past things he's protective of her he definitely has a father relationship with her that's all missing from the movie completely but I did not get any kind of I, people top people superimpose their own weird desires yes. for Clarice on that but that's not actually
1: no Chilton is is a genuine creep in this
0: yeah he and, straight up propositions Clarice when she first shows up at the at the
1: yeah office. and they showed that in the movie pretty well he's even smarmier in the movie he's pretty smarty in the book, but he's the one who has that speculation. So Crawford's wife is dying. that's that's where his emotions are. Uh, it's just interesting how much um, I thought this is actually fairly well done, especially considering it's a male writer and male writers don't always do this well, is portraying a woman who doesn't really care about romance. She's all about her career at this point. She's about service. And she has to deal with a lot of men's issues.
0: Yes. Misogyny is a major theme here. And for all intents and purposes, this is a feminist novel in some ways. Because she's not interested in in the stereotypical female role of the nurturer and whatnot. No, she's going to solve the case. She's really, in the book, they make a point of talking about how she's really good at what she does. She's very, very smart. She's one of the best Marksmen or shooters or whatever there's a whole section about her with the guns like she's awesome in the movie she didn't come across quite as competent i felt like she fumbles for her gun towards the end she kind of reacts to a lot of stuff but because we're not in her brain we're not seeing how she's putting things together and we don't see her rage and her her frustration always um like when the guy flicks the stuff on or she you know is oh horrified but in the book, we get her actually cursing and yeah. wishing that that could happen to Chilton. You know what I mean? She's much more self-contained in the movie. Yeah, she feels toned down to me in the movie, and just not quite as as fully fleshed out. So that yeah. that was a that was a pretty good size change. I felt like,
1: uh, according to Jodie Foster, a lot of her character information is she wanted a female hero's journey. That was important to her, and specifically female. She's not. A masculinized woman, so that was a big part of it. Is she's fit and she can do these things, but she's not Barbarella. She's not barbed wire. She's not one of those masculinized women.
0: Yeah, I I,
1: okay. Well,
0: that happens a lot when you
1: have a, a female in a in like a lead role like this. So if you look at you Right. No,
0: they, they definitely, and I think they actually, I don't know, because in the book, she seemed more feminine than in the movie. So I feel like they almost de Like in the book, her hair was much longer. Mm. They talked a lot about how beautiful she was. She was beautiful. Now, Jodie Foster is a, is a very good looking woman, but she has a very strong jawline. She's, You know, she's, she's a handsome lady for sure. And, you know, but she was not, she was, she was not, a. I would say the book, she was more feminine, even though she was, as she was fighting against a lot of misogyny in the book or in the movie, they did the shorthand of having her get in an elevator, wearing her workout clothes and being the super short person surrounded by all these tall guys who are wearing different colors. So she's in gray, they're all in orange. She's obviously different, but and they took out her roommate, so she was like literally the only woman, you know, except for the victim. So they're they're definitely painting that as like she's there's this woman's the victim, and then this woman is the FBI agent. In the book, there there was room for other types of femininity. So I would say that the book is way more feminist than the movie, even though what you're saying is is accurate about her, Judy Foster. Well, book, it so.
1: is, and it's sort of an interesting thing here um all the victims all these all these women are very derogatorily uh, displayed displayed Uh, yeah the way people talk about them discussed yeah well even the way they're displayed it's it's they're all just dropped in the river um yeah but it's a question of when you're you're doing this kind of film when you're doing this kind of show or entertainment do you focus on the serial killer and do you glamorize the serial killer or do you talk about the victims which one has higher prominence in the book there was more discussion from because we're in Clarice's head and she talks about how difficult it is to deal with a body when it's found in nature because you don't see all the parts of their life that's around them you don't see abused children you don't see all this ugly stuff that might color your information about them it's just a victim it's just this sad body so there's a little bit more sympathy given to the victims in the novel whereas in the movie they're just oh they're just big women
0: yes then their bigness was discussed in the in the novel quite a bit but in the movie we, we we hardly see the victim who had died we see there's one real quick shot and she's face down and it's 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 brought back in the book. There's a lot more detail talking about her hands and the jaw and the this and these body parts and stuff like that. So it's obviously it's more detailed, but I think that they made a good choice in the movie by changing that perspective. That scene of her doing the autopsy in the movie and in the book actually, but in the movie too, is very well done because they're not showing you. So in that case, it's what they're not showing you. They're not, the camera's not lingering over all these body parts. Um, we've got some lingering shots of the newspaper clippings, but it's not, that's not where the gore is in this movie. The gore is all saved for Hannibal's stuff.
1: It's all very, it's not explicit. Most of the gore is not explicit. It's all in your head. Until we get to Hannibal. True. Okay. But they're very, I mean, considering that it's a thriller, there's actually not that much violence concerning the average thriller. There's one or two scenes. Most of it's just hinted at, oh, here's a photo that you don't see, and we'll give a description of a nurse. You fill in that.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely built tone um, and atmosphere. And like I said, by showing you some things and not showing you other things.
1: So part of Clarice, I'll grant you that she is more feminine in the book, it's just when you don't have the character's internal thoughts, you do have to make certain changes. Sure. So, Yeah. I just thought that they watered down the feminist aspect in the movie. But as for her being attractive, I, I really like Jodie Foster in this role. Uh, originally, it was supposed to be Michelle Pfeiffer.
0: And then Meg May-
1: Ryan was even considered. And yeah, not appropriate. Yeah, no, no,
0: no, no, no. So quality of actress trumps maybe appearance. Sure. But they could have, I mean, yes, they made choices. Yeah, that's fine. Um, I have another theme of like, we were talking about the horror, so we can talk mm-hmm. about that. Some definite horror movie trope stuff happening. We have some pretty major misdirects where the you know they're coming into the house to do the big rescue. They're getting ready to pound down the doors, and the bad guys in his house. And there's a knock at the door, and you think, oh, but it's obviously not the FBI. They've got the wrong house, and oh, but there's you know Clarice, And okay, we have there. Okay, I think. Partly, my one of my problems is that this movie suffers from the fact that it's old because it was the foundation for so many things that came after it. So if you've seen the things that came after it, you look at this and you're like, okay, that's kind of lame and dated. But you have to remember that it was the beginning of all that. So Hannibal Lecter, okay. Um, it
1: is the joke of somebody who reads Shakespeare for the first time starts complaining. There's so many cliches. Right.
0: So he, he does feel very cliched and theatrical and overdone to me. And part of that is because I have seen the things that he inspired. I will say the idea of of the FBI or some organization, you know, trying to capture a bad guy by using another bad guy, you know, and then like getting too close to the that second bad guy and like being manipulated by the second bad guy is both fun and also very tired at this point in 2019. So I, I will also say that. I, did you ever watch The Blacklist? No, okay. So James Spader is amazing. He is so charismatic, and he's basically—he's not a serial killer, cannibal, Hannibal Lecter person, but he is like this highly intelligent crime boss major crime invest, you know, dude, right? And they, the same thing, that the whole thing starts off like he's in this cage and he will only talk to this one brunette, female, very young FBI agent. And she comes in, he gives her a little bit of information. She goes off and investigates. He gives her a little bit more. It's this whole cat and mouse thing that totally is mirrored and, and because of this kind of stuff. But James Spader is so much more charismatic. He can talk about anything and you cannot look away. I felt like this movie, Hannibal Lecter, was creepy, but a lot of it had to do with the lighting and kind of what he was saying. It wasn't as. I, I. And it was just so theatrical, like, especially the part at the end where he's in the cage and the lighting's all dark and he's looking up and you're like, okay, we get it. You're creepy. Oh, yes, there you are, being creepy. Okay, the film is 30 years old.
1: I. Yeah. And. It's not fair to compare it to the stuff that comes after. It's, it was innovative for the time and you can make better films once you have that as a template, but to be the originator. You know, if you look at Neuromancer, it's kind of hard to get through because the guy has some creative ideas, but he doesn't quite know how to write them very well. And then you have other people go, oh yeah, this is a great idea, and they do it better.
0: But you had to have the original in the beginning. So yes, giving full credit to the movie for doing all of that and setting, you know, setting all that into motion. Personal enjoyment factor. I I thought Hannibal was scarier in the book than the movie because we didn't have the lighting trick and the this thing and Anthony Hopkins, you know, and then I know, and because it's now pop culture the you know, I had him with the nice candy, you know, or whatever the heck it is. Like that's so much part of pop culture. And it's almost so jokey now that I feel like it really diminishes some of the scariness of it. Does that make sense? But I could see how at the time this was, would be terrifying and, and super, super scary. So yes. But do you want to talk more about the horror ideas or tropes or motifs of it being a horror movie. You you seem to like horror more than I do. I don't like horror. I, I really don't. Horror. Why
1: do we keep watching horror things? So originally in the book, it wasn't Chianti, it was Amarone, because that actually pairs well with liver. So there, there's, you know, it, you're talking about James Spader, if he could talk to you about anything, well, the book Lecter was a little bit more of that. And they cut down his scenes quite a bit. Yeah. And that's really... The shining part of both the book and the movie are those scenes between Hector and Clarice. Now see I I wouldn't agree
0: with that. So okay, please. so what were you to you the shining parts? Well, I okay. I don't think any of it was shiny. That's not a word I would use to describe. There were very compelling scenes in this, though. I, I thought the scene where she was doing the autopsy, where she basically shoot all the men out of the room in, in both the book and the movie. by cho- And in the book, she made it clear, in the movie was not as clear. She chose to lean into her accent yeah. to remind all of these men of their mothers and the church ladies and their grandmas and be like, y'all, you've done your part, now let me do mine, and like shoot them out of the room to give... Give this poor victim some dignity. Like that was a really good scene in both the book and the movie. Um, but better in the book. The, the well, it's more subtle in the movie
1: because you do hear her accent come out and she's like, well, come on, man. But it, it's subtle because we're not in her head. We can't see the thought process going
0: on. Yes. So, but that was a scene that I, I found very compelling and enjoyed. Um, in the book, it was a little long, but the scene of her trying to get into the storage, facility and then get into the car and then there were knees suddenly and then okay it's a mannequin oh it's a a head in a jar and you know, again, again, we're not in her head, but, you know, she she's aware that she's putting herself in this dangerous situation. So she bluffs the guy who's out there who owns the store. She's like, the you know, the other cops know I'm here. You know, if this if this door comes down, blah, blah, blah. You know, all of this stuff as she's worming in and, and dealing with the mice. And like, we're seeing her deal with her fears and stuff. So I thought that was a very compelling scene. I mean, yeah, the scenes with Lecter were fine and they were definitely part of it. The scenes that stayed with me that were the scary scenes were the scenes between bill James, and the victim you know and in his thought process because again in the movie we don't get very much of buffalo bill slash jame gum we get very few scenes of him um in the book we get in his brain we get his his whole thought process we get the ideas of what he's doing and his stuff with the dog and is watching these videotapes and and a lot of his internal thoughts which are terrifying to me it's 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 scarier for me when an author is writing from the point of view of somebody so deranged because you're, then you're, you're unwittingly or wittingly, I suppose, because you're choosing to read this book, you're in their head. And I, I don't like living in the heads of bad people. We're never really in Lecter's head, except where he's having his big rumination, which, let me tell you, was dumb. Okay. Major, I'm, I'm going to skip a little bit, but. My major, I have a couple major problems with this book, too, even though I liked it. But he didn't use his brains. He's supposed to be so smart and so amazing. And he basically has a memory palace where he just remembers everything, which is great. That's cool. But, like, he didn't solve anything. He remembered that he already knew about this guy.
1: Yeah, he's (laughs) playing people. He wants to seem like the prophetic genius. And he really isn't. He's much more normal.
0: Yeah, but yeah. even then, he doesn't want to give them all the answers. Like, he could have just said, it's this guy, and I'm awesome. But no, he's like, I'm going to give you a, a this. You know, because he wants his own thing. He wants to escape and blah, blah, blah. But it's not like he called at the end after he escaped and was like, by the way, here's the real guy. Like, he just wants to watch the world burn. Like, that's fine. Um, and I don't particularly like living in his head either. But okay, whatever. This so
1: kind of makes me think of Jaws, where the less you see of the monster, the more scary it is. If we hadn't had that scene in Hannibal Lecter's head... Annabelle Lecter would have been more intimidating, but then you see it, and it's not the buildup that you see from the outside.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, and then and then we got too many serial killers. It's this serial killer who knows this serial killer who wants slept with this serial killer, and then yeah, that was really convoluted, very convoluted. Which, so I'm glad that they cut a lot of that out of the movie. That was that was a good. Good choice there. Um, the moth thing I did not seem like it really made sense with with James Gum's personality. He's he's this kind of character. He's obsessed. He covets. He's unhappy. He hates himself. Blah blah blah. I get that the the symbolism of the moth. You know the crystallis, and then you merge and you're different and all of that stuff. But. It just seemed maybe too cerebral for this James Gum yeah, person. Yeah, he's much
1: more instinctual. It felt like.
0: Yeah, and like, and that he had the epiphany because he had a, a suitcase with moths in it. Like, I just okay. Like, mm. so there were definitely things about this book that I I didn't get or didn't feel like were the greatest flow. They fixed a lot of that with the movie, but then they kind of leaned into it a little bit too much, I yeah. felt, in some ways of the well, movie. Well, yeah, so, Gum and Hector are supposed to be
1: the opposites of those spectrums, where you have somebody who's very plan-oriented and very meticulous, and then you have Gum who is the exact opposite, who wants to live in these bodies, and he's really gross in a lot of ways, and he isn't the thinker. Right. Yeah. So... So
0: that kind of accepted, you know, he thought enough to, to vary the, 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 places of dumping and stuff. I just, I don't know, man. I just, okay, whatever. So anything else you want to say about horror? <laughs> I guess we kind of got <laughs> off topic there, but uh, here's a theme I thought. So uh, about the ends justifying the means. So would they have found Bill or Gum without Lecter? Do you think? Eventually
1: they probably would have. Lecter speeded up the process because Clarice is
0: putting together those clues. Right, but they wouldn't have if, if she, she's only there because they decided to get Lecter involved. Yes, right? So if they had not gone down the Lecter road and they hadn't brought her in, they would have solved it eventually, right? So I you know, I I see what you're saying about Lecter sped it up, but I think Clarice really helped speed it up too. And so that kind of part and parcel together. Um Even after Lecter has killed more people in his escape from custody. (laughs) Like, okay. Um, And Clarice still believes that she was on the right track uh, by getting his help. You know, she heeds his advice. She finds the vital clue, all of that kind of stuff. Well, it was really Chilton
1: who messed up with Lecter.
0: Yes, that's definitely so. I mean, we've had this theme before about how the bureaucracy can, like, mess up the best laid plans or, you know, petty bureaucrats. Because that's what Chilton basically is. Okay, so here, the idea of progress and goals. So, again, in the book, it's a big deal that she's a student. And if she misses too much class and finals and tests, she can get recycled Mm -hmm. and basically go back into, you know, limbo and not be able to finish her training and become Mm -hmm. a special agent, FBI agent. She'd have to wait for another opening. Right. And in the movie, they didn't really have that. So she didn't have as much um, at stake by... Being a part of this investigation in the book, she had to make a choice to continue investigating or to take care of herself, and she chose to do the investigate It worked out well for her because yeah, she helped. it shows a, a service personality. Yes, again, the book I think did it a better job of but that. I wonder
1: if it's again kind of distracting from the main plot, and it's another side
0: thing that had to be taken out. Yeah, but I think that it really informed her character. And I Mm. think that it has its levels because, okay, so she, every waking moment of her is about getting rid of the the serial killers, And, you know, she's at the beginning of the movie, she's like running an obstacle at the beginning of the, the, you know, that's actually in Quantico.
1: So the sign that they have up, that's the actual sign that they have in FBI's Quantico training. Oh. And the first guy she meets is an FBI agent in real life. Oh, well.
0: Neat. So she's running an obstacle course, but she's alone. Like, she's constantly moving. She can't sleep. It's like this reoccurring thing. And the fact that she does get to sleep at the end is important. Like, that has her character gets to have this growth and change. In the movie, because we don't have that, and at the end, too, she's not resting at the end. She's going, Dr. Lecter, Dr. Lecter, Dr. Lecter! And she's freaking out on the phone. And so the endings are very different for Clarice. She gets her happy ending in the book. She doesn't get it in the movie, but she... But she gets it by, you know, going through all of these trials and tribulations and making choices and suffering and sacrificing. And in the movie, she has, you know, an adventure and her life is definitely in danger and it's very scary and it's not over yet. So it, it, they're just two very different ideas of, of her story. Well, okay. So do you think a hero
1: is somebody who is created or a hero is somebody who is always the hero but has to discover that about their nature?
0: I think it can be either. Or both. So, you know, that's...
1: um, When I was reading interviews about this from Jodie Foster's perspective, Clarice is always the hero. And that's informed by how she reacts on the ranch. She has to save these creatures. And they're destined to die. There's no way that she can really help them, but she has to do that. At the end, when she does get to finally sleep, it's noted that that is a temporary reprieve. She has to keep going, because the Silence of the Lambs, it's not... A forever state. It's a temporary state.
0: Yeah, but she does get to rest, and the last line of the book is that she's asleep. You know, and she hasn't been sleeping for most of the book. She's been so driven. But she's not the only person with like this progress and thing. Like Lecter's progress and goal is to escape. So he does all of these things to get there. And Buffalo Bill's whole progress or his whole goal is to become something else and to, you know, complete his masterpiece or whatever. And even Crawford is like, I felt like he was trying to atone and trying to make the world a better place. And like, you know.
1: Crawford, I find more problematic. Because he is putting a trainee in danger, and you see him as a father figure, and yes, he does try to be that, but he also doesn't want to go near Lecter.
0: Well, because Lecter he already has a relationship with Lecter because of the first book, yes, and, right. So when we cut that out of the movie, then we don't get to reference it. But in the in the book, because they had a relationship, he couldn't go to Lecter. That wasn't an option for him. Okay, I'll, I'll grant that. I just, I it, mean, it's interesting that he picked her, and you know, and the. In the you know they talk about how like she made a good impression on him earlier. Yeah, he's trying class to mentor and, her in a lot of scenes, right? And again, because we ref- in the book we have more about his relationship with William Graham and all of these other you know this a whole other story because this is the second in a series, but the movie was really filmed and shot and, and presented as the first in a series, as opposed to being the second mm-hmm. in a series. And I think that that definitely changes the ideas of our goals and whatnot. But I thought it was you're talking about a. a a hero journey. We often have our protagonist and our antagonist, and we don't often give a lot of screen and and word time to the middleman. And Lecter's a middleman. He's hmm. not our protagonist. He's not our antagonist. I mean, he's going to be the antagonist, obviously, of the next one when they're all out there trying to find him or whatever. Yeah. But... So when we
1: talk about journeys, Hector, Hector, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Lecter doesn't change, and that's
1: what's fascinating to me about. Clarice and Gum. Gum doesn't get much screen time. And that's deliberate in a lot of ways because you don't want to make a serial killer glamorous. Mm-hmm. That's problematic. But they're both transforming. Clarice isn't as, I guess, consciously wanting to transform. It's just the journey that she accepts because that's what well, She's getting
0: harder and getting more experience, yeah, etc. So
1: she's going through it deliberately in one way. Gum is doing this really evil way. And so I think they make really interesting foils just on that. And then, you know, the person who doesn't change is Lecter. Yeah, the middleman. Yeah. yeah, which is
0: interesting. It's an interesting choice, both the author and director.
1: I, I thought this is kind of fascinating. Um, Hopkins said that when he was thinking of Lecter's personality and how to present them, it was a combination of Hal 9000, Catherine Hepburn and Truman Capote.
0: After he said that, I could kind of see Catherine Hepburn in there. Interesting. Yeah. What I found interesting is that they they stepped up a lot of stuff. They leaned into a lot of the theatrical aspects of Lecter in the movie, but they also downplayed. Him. In the book, he has red eyes and six fingers on one hand. Yes, he's much more freakish. But yeah, in the movie, I, yeah. So I mean, okay, that's that was an interesting change. We tone him down and ramp him up in a different way, maybe to make him less cartoony. I'm not. I'm not sure. Like, it's scarier if he looks like somebody who would just be anybody. That you'd walk, you know, by in the grocery store. If I walked by somebody in the grocery store with red eyes and six fingers, I'd probably remember them. The six-fingered man. Yeah, exactly. You killed my former patient's lover friend with his moths. Yeah, so
1: the journey when we first see Lecter, it's, it's basically down into the id. It's straight down there. Yeah. Uh, so the first time I read this book, it's really gross. You, you have this one guy who just wants to talk about poop. It, he, he's just getting under uh, Clarice's skin. Then uh, the scene where she gets the semen thrown in her face happens before she meets Lecter. So
0: it's just this continued... No, no. First he whispers, I can smell your cunt. Then she talks to Lecter. Then she walks out. And while she was talking to Lecter, he was jacking off and flicks it at her face. So she, she's met Lecter. Yes. Okay. But... The first time I read it, it, it was this
1: really grim, dark, just deepening into the id of all this gross stuff. And then as I read it so many years later, having more experience of the world, I just go, Ugh, fucking creepers. Because you just, you get inundated with this stuff. It's just creepers everywhere. Yes. Sometimes in the most unexpected ways. But that's one of the things I find interesting about Lecter, is if you look it up from like, the id and the superego... How you are deepening into this id, and that's what he is. He's this super ego, as well as being this very base instinctual character.
0: So I have, like two main things left. I have my LGBT stuff, yes, and then I've got like what worked for me and what didn't, and then like kind of my end thoughts. So I don't have too much more to say. Do you want to talk about the LGBT stuff? Yeah,
1: that's an important thing. And at the time this movie came out, you know, there there were transcripts saying this is really messed up you're you're making another trans character be the bad guy you know they're, they're always a the creepy one and so denny tried to defend this and say well she's got that one line well you know trans people are very passive this can't be a real trans person but that doesn't translate when you have most of the film being
0: taken up by what is perceived by a trans person so I have a thing I want to read about this, because I thought I put it really well. So Harris, the author of the book, took great pains to differentiate between real transgendered people and Buffalo Bill. The point is initially made by Hannibal, who suggests that Gum is only not a transsexual, he just believes that he is a transsexual and Starling says that line about there's no correlation that between transsexualism and violence transsexuals are passive types usually which anytime you paint with a broad brush you're going to be wrong so we understand yeah. that also transsexual is not a term we use anymore again 1988 furthermore during Crawford's attempts to obtain medical records from Dr. Danielson head of the gender identity clinic at Johns Hopkins to see if the killer might have applied for gender reassignment surgery but been denied the aforementioned Danielson has this to say this part was not in the movie but it really should have been because it would have answered a lot of these complaints. But the doctor says to even mention Buffalo Bill in the same breath with the same problems that we treat here is ignorant and unfair and dangerous. Mr. Crawford, it makes my hair stand on end. It's taken years. We're not through yet. Showing the public that transsexuals aren't crazy, they aren't perverts. The incidence of violence among transsexuals is a lot lower than the general population. These are decent people with a real problem. They deserve help and we can give it. I'm not having a witch hunt here. Finally, Harris reveals that Gum's desire isn't to become a woman in general, but rather one specific woman, his biological mother, who died when he was a child. And even then, it's an idealized, glamorous version of a mother in his fantasy. Other than the initial suggestion that Gum has co opted transsexualism and Starling's insistence that transgendered people are passive types, none of the above stuff, none of that content, made the cut for Dem. Deme. Is that how you're saying his name? Yeah cut for Demme, Demme. And, the, and the company's film adaptation. No impassioned speech from the John Hopkins daughter. No revelation that Gums' insanity is rooted in a larger identity problem not specific to gender. Moreover, neither Harris's novel nor the movie feature positive queer characters to even balance the scales. So it's understandable why the film in particular received so much criticism from the gay and transgender communities. They go on. The narrative suffers from an air in omission rather than intent as indicated by Jonathan Demme's reaction in utter horror of his mistake. He was so taken aback by these criticisms that he chose Philadelphia, about a man's civil suit against his former employees who fired him because he was gay and had contracted AIDS, as his next project. Deme also said in a recent interview with the Huffington Post that he applauded the voices from the queer community taking his film to task. When you know better, you, you do, do better. better. For sure. So, Yeah. That would be – that's a great
1: scene in the book, and I wish it had made it into the movie just for that reason. And I'm glad that he, as a director,
0: learned. Acknowledged and learned. Yeah, yeah for sure. But again, we the – the novel was, I said before, feminist. The movie, not quite as – even though, you know, it was still trying, just it wasn't quite as feminist as the novel, which is fine. Not every novel and book has to be feminist. But especially when you have one that's literally about the carving up the skins of women, it's nice that we had a female protagonist who was fighting against that. Um, it would be very easy for this just to be, you know, uh, men killing women, men rescuing women. you know, women are just the plot devices and That's the why I think
1: that the victim who's in the... Catherine well, in the yeah. well? Yeah, so Catherine in the well... She is a much more interesting character
0: than at first blush. Yes, and she tries to escape and has a very clever little plan of how to do it to get the little yappy, much-loved dog.
1: She actually keeps the dog in the end. Yes, she does. Which is kind of cute. And the dog didn't have a broken leg. It was just she was holding it. And, and
0: pretending and, and threatening it and all the stuff to, yeah. to send him
1: over the edge. So, yeah. So, at the time, and again, this is 30 years ago, victims were not... Presented. I don't want to call her a victim because she, in some ways, she she's stuck in a very terrible situation. But she does everything she can. She's still a victim.
0: Yeah. She was literally kidnapped and drugged and starved. She's I, a victim. Uh, okay, so I guess she was
1: victimized. Okay, because victim can be a loaded term. It's one of those terms that has
0: become a bit problematic, and it depends on in what context that you're using it Sure, in. but Catherine's not here to say I don't consider myself a victim. In this novel, she was painted as a victim. She was victimized. She was a, the woman in peril. Mm.
1: Yeah, she's a damsel in distress, but she's not just sitting in the castle. She's mm. a damsel in distress who's trying to fight the dragon as much as she can in that of course. situation.
0: And, you know, is the one who eventually gets rescued.
1: Had a plan and, you know, was... And the senator is also an interesting character. She does try to, to humanize her daughter. She does do this thing where she tries to talk to... The, uh, the serial killer, and there's no sense that he ever saw that. And so, all this stuff that she was putting out in the world didn't work. And also, how she has to deal with Lecter. Yeah. And she catches on to Chilton uh, in the book. She has this terrifying moment where Chilton's trying to show off Lecter like he's a carnival barker. And she's just like, oh God, what have I gotten myself into? This guy's an idiot. Right.
0: Yeah, again, we've got – and I know Lecter's thing isn't um, – Lecter is all about the mind games and tormenting anybody. It's not that he's specifically tormenting women, but what what we see is we see him messing with her brain and enjoying her anguish, you know, talking about her daughter. We see that he talked the, the um, other guy into committing suicide. Um, so he definitely – it's not a gender push for who he's victimizing – but we do see it with the, with the senator, and he seems to take this very, very... Perver- and the way that he bothers her is tied to her gender, because he brings up breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. So if it was a father standing there, he would have had to come up with something else that probably wouldn't have been as quite so body... Um, body intimate? Intimate, yeah. you know.
1: Yeah, you know. Uh, he, he does get pretty gross. Uh, uh, so what do you think about his last line,
0: Love your suit. It's just more mind games. He's a dude who's fucking with a woman's head. She's a woman in power. Of course she has to wear a suit. And of course her things matter. The first, one of the first things he says to Clarice is you with your good, purse and your cheap shoes or your cheap shoes and your good purse bag or whatever so this is how men relate to women we talk about their bodies with their breastfeeding and you know whatever and, and their cunts when he talks to Clarice that's one of the first things he says to her too and you know and we lord our dominance over them and we put them in their little boxes we refer to their outfits yeah it's it exact he's part of this misogynistic crap that Clarice is fighting against. I love that she, the woman was a Senator though, that the Senator yeah. was a woman like that. Like I said, the novel has a lot of, a lot of feminism in it, but that's
1: one of those lines that there's a reason people like Hannibal Lecter. And that's one of those lines where he has that sense of humor where he does push people's buttons, but there's that sense that he's above it. And that's why he can do this sort of stuff. Chilton tries to get under his skin in the same way. He says, well, you're just going to go to prison, and you're going to be raped by all these other prisoners, and that's going to be your life. But that does not get to Lecter.
0: Yeah. um, Can we go back to what you said? People like Hannibal Lecter because he— Hold on. You said people like Hannibal Lecter because he's above it all?
1: Not that he's above it all, but he is a charismatic, evil character. Yeah. People like intelligence. They like that he has that kind of sense of humor in a way.
0: Yes. I too enjoy when men use their senses of humor to be domineering and assholes to people. I love it when, ah, no. Okay. Sorry. I'll okay. Do you it don't
1: that. have to love it. I'm just saying that he's a very popular character and I'm exploring why that is.
0: And that disturbs me. That he's a popular character? If he's a popular character because people like his sense of humor, yeah, that disturbs me. Right. Yeah. Because, ew. (laughs) Well, it's not just his his humor. It's
1: that he does present himself as a very intelligent character. We don't have that internal monologue where he's in his memory palace, as you call it. Right. And so we don't have to deal with, okay, maybe he is a letdown. It is the Jaws moment of, we don't see everything that's left or we just see from the outside. And from the outside, he's cultured. He's intelligent, and there is a charisma about him. Sure. And if you treat him like a human, he's very – he and Barney have an interesting relationship as well because Barney, so, and Barney treats him in,
0: well. In the book is his guard who treats him well, and yes, he's nice to Barney. The guards at the end were the ones he killed mm-hmm. because they didn't treat him like a human. That's why he killed them. No, they, it was an opportunistic thing. If he had the chance to kill Barney be, to get out, I think he would have done the same thing. There seems to be that
1: respect of civility. Ugh, no. So I don't think Barney would have gotten off, but because Barney treated him like a human, and that's what Hector Hector God, Hannibal Hector
0: wants is to be treated like a human. Yeah. Now I think Hannibal Lecter wants to be worshipped as God. I think the reason why I think the reason why he tells Clarice in the book that he's going to leave her alone is because he likes knowing that she's out there. He likes to watch the world burn, and he wants her to be to maybe maybe there'll be some other serial killer who he happened to know based on somebody at six degrees of separation, Hannibal Lecter, and he can play this game with her again in the future. He is all about the mind games, like you said. And in the in the book, he. He threatens Chilton at the end. He's like, I'll see him real soon in his little letters and stuff. Willie. I don't know. I don't know. Because Chilton is a bug. He may or may not go after him. But Chilton's going to live in fear? That's almost worse. Like, never being able to relax. In the movie, he's going to kill him, like, pretty soon. We see him following him along. So we know that that's going to happen, right? Um, which is, is less creepy. Yes, he is a charismatic character. Kind of. I... <sighs> Sure. I don't think that I would say he has a sense of humor. I'm not sure if, if is your because he said nice suit because he was mocking and being rude. That to me doesn't count as a sense of humor. That's just a dick move. So I can't think of any other jokes that he tells. Um, I can think of when he's being intentionally gross to be gross and intentionally creepy to be creepy intentionally poking your buttons to intentionally poke your buttons. But I don't see any of that as being funny. I mean, he's amusing to himself. I'm not saying that
1: it's just the sense of humor. It's that he presents himself as a very cultured, very intelligent person and very controlled in a lot of ways. Sure, but... And that's what makes him sort of fascinating. Oh, okay. You know, you you have Gum, who's just an animal. You have uh, Briggs, who's just there to, to be a gross sort of killer that's in the other cell there's nothing of interest to them you have chilton who is supposed to be this kind of character where he is educated and yet he's a fool he's a total fool
0: who gets played very easily yeah well and obviously a lot of people agree with you and they made more movies about hannibal lecter and And those movies fail epically so maybe he's better as the (laughs) middleman.
1: well the the thing that makes this film interesting is the gore really isn't it's not about the gore There's a couple scenes here and there to make a point, but that's not the point of the film. Or as in uh, Red Dragon, it it is about sort of the gross. Yeah, but, you
0: know. um, I did think it was interesting that, yeah, so they save all the gore for Hannibal, basically, at the end. He's the the goriest, bloodiest scene. And in the movie, they made it even more bloody and gory by hanging the body up. In In the books, he didn't hang the body up on the cage. He just left one down here and one in the elevator shaft and, you know, they'll it to be there or whatever. Um,
1: so I can tell you're not know. that impressed with some of the, the movie gimmicks. Uh, I found the, the subtleties in the film interesting. And it's one of those films that I can watch over. And when I'm not distracted as much by the story, because I know the story, there's more things that you pick up. So when she does go down, I know like there's just that red, everyone's in red. That's an interesting choice as far as film and coloration and how you want to frame something. There are submarine sounds when she's there. And again, it's that sort of... Say the there, when she goes... Because we we're, were talking she, about the courthouse, and you're not talking about the courthouse. You're not no, talking I'm about, talking about when she first meets Lecter. Okay. So when she's at the asylum, there are submarine sounds that play while she's down there. So these are kind of the, the subtle things to add the creepiness. When they take out the pupa from the woman's throat in the autopsy, there's a sigh that can be very telling. I find that sort of interesting symbolically. you know there's gas that builds up, and so when you do like unchoke the throat, there there would be sort of this gas release. but it's also that idea of the dead speaking, and that's what they're trying to do with an autopsy. It's trying to find out what the dead would say, mm-hmm. So I find that symbolically interesting.
0: Cool. (laughs) I'm still stuck on you saying when I watch this and I can watch it again and blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, I I will never watch this movie again. You cannot pay me. I felt like I needed to bleach my eyes. I've had nightmares. I'm not okay. I'm going to edit this when we're done. And then I'm not going, I'm going to purposely not think about this book or movie for as long as possible. Because... I had a nightmare about my cat eating my face the other night, coupled with sleep paralysis. Wow. Not a good place for me. I'm just saying, I don't, I don't like living in in bad, evil people's heads. And I don't, this, I did, I did not. I feel like you could get. In fact, here I will tell you. Here are my final thoughts, and I've got some fun trivia thing too. Okay, I kind of, I, I'm, I'm. I am reading this verbatim off of another website because I thought it just summed out exactly what I was feeling so well. And I'm going to link to it on our blog. But there's no doubt that this is a great movie. A timeless classic that will never get old for some people. You know that this is a good movie because the critics don't want to admit it. It's a horror film. That being said, all that is great about the film, minus the performances is in the book with an added layer of depth and the movie just isn't able to muster in a reasonable one time. And yet it's an incredible quick and easy read as great as this movie is. The book is so and more. So if the subject matter and all of that stuff sounds like something you want to do, do the book, do yourself a favor and do the book. And then sure, watch the thing so you can get all the pop culture Chianti <laughs> references and whatnot. But that would be that would be my thought. I and I'm done, and I will. I don't want to read anymore. I them. feel like
1: we're being Siskel and Ebert. So they famously had a fight over this. Ebert liked it. Siskel hated it. Oh really? Yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, so your final thoughts? To you it kind of I don't know. Um, you're you're reminding me of Scott Glenn who plays uh, Jack Crawford. So Scott Glenn. I um, was talking to John Douglas, who was the person he's portraying in this. Douglas was kind of irritated with him because he's this liberal and he didn't believe in the death penalty and that bothered Douglas and so he made him listen to a tape of these two killers rape and torture these girls and they would do this once a year and according to Douglas you know Glenn listened to about a minute of this and he was in tears and after that he was for the death penalty and he had huge issues so it sounds a lot like what you're going through of this this kind of dark movie just he couldn't get past it.
0: Yeah, I don't like living there.
1: Yeah. Um, personally, I was really fascinated by this for a while, just uh, as a from a profiling perspective. And so I've read a couple of John Douglas's books at the time. So, yeah, different reaction.
0: So there you go. I had some trivia points. Do you want, do you want to hear my little trivia points? Sure. Let's see here. It was the third film in Oscar history to win... Five Academy Awards: a Academy Award for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Screenplay. Oh yeah! Okay, here this is a fun little piece of trivia. The guy who plays Buffalo Bill/slash James Gum was Stodelmeyer on Monk. Captain Stottlemyre, Captain Mustache on Monk. <laughs> I would have never placed him. Nope. <laughs> majorly brain trippy. Okay.
1: So his dance scene was not scripted. And he apparently had to drink a lot
0: of tequila before he got up the nerve to do that. Yeah. He's also Bill slash James is based on the real life sexual psychopath Edward Gein, who was also classified as schizophrenic. During the 1950s, he gained notoriety as one of the most famous combinations of necrophilia, transvestitism and fetishism. With the exception of necrophilia, James Gum had an almost identical psychological makeup. So
1: there's... I've heard various reports from Thomas Harris that he based it on three different serial killers and that he didn't base it on anybody in particular, that he talked with John Douglas and just sort of amalgamated what serial killers do right so then there just happened to to
0: be one just like him in the 50s so well that's there's um,
1: there's ted bundy who used the arm cast there's gary Henrick and he's the one who kept women in a well and then there's ed gein yay <laughs> so other
0: people might find this more fascinating yes yes this part of the podcast is for you people who listen to true crime dramas and stuff and murder mysteries i know you're out there <coughs> Robin, you like watching things about people dying and stuff.
1: Um, there, I don't know how true this is. Um, this is one of the things I, I passed along. Uh, Lecter could be treated with uh, drugs. I'm probably going to get this messed up because I don't know drugs names very well. Monoamine oxidase. It's an MAOI. And those drugs, the three things that you're not supposed to have are liver, fava beans, and wine. So it's a little psychological joke.
0: Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Funny. Okay. So that was my final thought. If it's your thing, cool. And if you liked the movie, you probably liked the book because it did a better job of all the things that the movie tried to do.
1: The thing that distracted me in the book is the tense changing. Every once in a while, I go to present tense, and that took me out of okay,
0: it. Okay, yeah, I mean, the book wasn't perfect. One of the things that bothered me in the book was that it was very aged in terms of the technology. So it's like, oh, we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this. And I learned a lot about FBI procedurals that I just don't care. But And, and you know, this is fair. If, if the book was written today and it was FBI procedurals, procedures now, I'd be like, oh, that's kind of interesting that this is what the FBI does. But I'm reading really, I'm like, I know that this is the late 80s. I know that none of this is relevant anymore. And I'm not super interested in the history of the FBI in that term. So, like, it just didn't resonate with me. There was a lot of that and a lot of... And now I'm flying over here and now I'm walking over here and now I'm f- filing this report and now I'm calling this person and now I'm writing down this note and now I'm blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh, my God, I get it. You're, you're being a very good FBI person. Good <laughs> the, for you. <laughs>
1: the thing that disappointed me when I first read it was how basic this, the prose was. And so that kind of bothered me. I, I was expecting
0: something a little bit more elevated. Right. And I think I... At one point, I had the book open. So you have two pages, right? And Starling, 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 Starling. Starling. I'm like, buy Thomas Harris a pronoun. Because seriously, he was like, a, like allergic to using the pronoun. I don't know what the problem was. But Starling walked and then Starling opened the door. Starling looked in the room and Starling saw that there was a table. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Simplistic prose. And I wonder
1: how much of that is trying to get into police procedurals because you do have to have this certain kind of language that you use. But from a novel standpoint, it doesn't work very well. Yeah, for sure. But, again, I, I you've made this point. I just want to reiterate, it's a little unfair to judge something that is that old. It yeah, was, and
0: You've made that point, yeah. too.
1: So, Okay. I don't know. I don't have I'm any done. further Was thoughts. it worth your time? Okay, so... I don't have the same aversion to horror. I don't like torture porn. I can't stand the Saw movies. I can't stand the hostile films. It has to be a really good horror film for me to like it. But there are horror films that I've liked in the past. So for me, this was a lot more interesting because there are serial killers or this does actually happen and I can understand where that's even more terrifying for some people and they don't want to be in that because it is real but for me, that's what makes it interesting is that this was something that could be real. So was it worth your time? Yes. Okay. It is a very well-made film. The book is kind of meh. You'll get a little bit more out of the film having read the book but the book is meh. Okay. Okay.
0: Feel free to send us an email at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com with your own opinions and take part in our poll. We will have a poll up about this movie. And we'll see you all next time when we read something, hopefully, a little bit lighter. And now, a little behind-the-scenes extra just for you. If Lecter reveals Buffalo Bill's true identity to Chilton... Oh, my God. Hey. Sorry. What the fuck? Oh, my God. Yeah, there's vomit. Oh, my God.
1: It's a lot of it, too.
0: Oh, windowsill. Why? Because it's a cat. No, but the last time she was sick, it was because she was eating rubber bands, and there's no... Oh, my God. Do you want me to clean this? No.
1: You kind of do. No.
0: Oh my god, I just- is she done? Yes. <sighs>
1: here, there's five more. Oh, Minka. <laughs> How did you survive with a baby?
0: Diapers contain the mess.
1: You know, I thought, like, the poopy part was a, the one thing that you couldn't handle. <sighs> oh my god. I apologize for this interruption by Mika.
0: You know what? Maybe Mika just had an opinion about the book and movie, and that was her opinion. She threw it practically on your head. I. I. You know?
1: (laughs) It's just she had such a strong reaction to it. She's just. uh,
0: (laughs) That was a whole stomach's worth. (laughs) Okay. So.